Philippians chapter 1 is where we're at. We're going to read, we're going to start in verse 21. We covered some of verse 21 last week. We'll hit it again this week, and we'll read down through verse 26. I will give you a term, though, before we read. The term is soliloquy. Soliloquy is a theater or drama term that's used where a character on stage will kind of act out his thoughts. He will monologue the thought process and the debate that he's having inside of his head and inside of his heart. And this is about as close as you can get in Scripture to soliloquy, where Paul is just kind of talking out loud and giving us this debate between living and dying and the pros and cons of them and what he wants to choose. And we're going to unpack this this morning, but let's, let's read it together. Verse 21 really summarizes it. It's a very terse way of, of just compressing what he's going to elaborate. But verse number 21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose I wot not, or I don't know. For I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. You see the contrast there, living, dying, he's going to elaborate a little more. Verse 24, but nevertheless, to abide in the flesh or to live is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. This morning I just want to speak on this subject, someone to live and die for. And this is really what Paul is saying here, that it's going to be a win-win situation for him. Life, death, it doesn't matter. He has someone that he can live and die for. This passage of Scripture here is beautiful, and all Scripture is beautiful, but this is especially potent to me, and there's such rich takeaways regarding this life, but also regarding the next life, all really in one passage of Scripture here. And I've, there's a ton to glean. There's a ton to clean, but I've done my best to distill this down to kind of three core principles that I hope we can walk away with this morning. And here are the three principles. In Christ, the world is in checkmate. In Christ, death is a comma, not a period. And in Christ, living for others makes sense. I first want to tackle that, that thought of in Christ, the world is checkmate. Paul says in verse number 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we spent some time here last week, so I won't dwell too awfully long on this particular statement, but it's almost breathtaking when you think of what Paul just said. And Paul, just to be clear, Paul is not terminally depressed. All right, this is not a death wish for Paul to say to die is gain. My, my circumstances are so bleak that I just want to escape this and I just want to get out of this. This is not escapism for the apostle. This letter shows that Paul is full of life and energy and he's ready to get back to work and put his hand to the plow should he be released from prison. But what Paul is saying here, I think you could summarize it and say it this way, that in Christ the world is in checkmate. Any chess enthusiasts in the room? How many of you like chess, love chess? All right, a few chess enthusiasts. What's the goal of chess? The goal of chess is to put your opponent in checkmate. You say, okay, how do I put someone in checkmate? Maybe you've never played chess, so you just don't get it. To put someone in checkmate, you position yourself in such a way that no matter how your opponent moves, no matter what they throw at you, no matter how they maneuver themselves, you win every time. You get to a point where no matter what they do, you're positioned in such a way that you win no matter what they throw at you. And this this is really where Paul is at. We've, we've covered the background already, but Paul is a man who is in prison, so he's lost his freedom. That's, that's pretty detrimental. 
Paul is a man who has been slandered by those who are supposedly for Jesus, and they're slandering him and speaking out against him. Paul is under the threat of death. Now, that's a cocktail of badness that most people would not want. If I had you list, you know, give me the top five things that could potentially happen to you that would really mess with your heart, I dare say you losing your freedom entirely would be high on that list. I dare say the threat of death would be high on that list. Maybe even people slandering you when you're innocent would be high on that list. But that's where Paul is at, yet there's this buoyancy in his soul that's exhibited. There is this joy, there is this peace, there is this confidence that he has in God despite all of this. And Paul's at a spot where people have tried to ruin his circumstances. They've said, okay, let's lock you in prison. And Paul's response to that is, fine, new mission field. They say, okay, people are going to speak evil against you and people are slandering you and they're putting you down. Paul says, are they talking about Jesus? They're promoting Christ? Fine, I'm good with that. Let us, we're going to kill you. Yippee, I'm going to go be with Jesus. That's going to be great. You know what? Fine, we'll leave, we'll leave you alive. Okay, splendid. I'm going to go. I'm going to go work for Jesus. No matter what they do, Paul has essentially said, world, checkmate. Like no matter how you maneuver, how you position yourself, what you're bringing at me, I have, I've tethered myself to the eternal. I have linked my circumstances and my purposes with the, the circumstances and purposes that God has for my life. And I have great job security in this. I have great peace in this. You can bring whatever you want at me. This is, this is a win-win situation for me. Honestly, it's beyond that. It's, it's more like a win-win, win-win-win-win-win situation. No matter how they're attacking him, how you slice it, Paul is saying that this, I'm, I'm not going to be down about this. I have trust, I have confidence, I know that this is going to work out well, and the only way that he can do this, and the only way that you can do this, is if you too can say and attest to the fact that for me to live is Christ. That's the only way you get to the point where you can then say, to die is gain. And if you can't, if you can't center your life on that purpose, then you inevitably will invent a purpose of your own. You'll live for something. You will have some sort of bottom line. You will have some sort of driving motivation. There will be something that will motivate you. And if you have a purpose outside of Christ, it can't hold the freight of your life. It just can't. It will end up crumbling. It will end up crushing you. If, you're, if your bottom line isn't Jesus, you're always subject to fate. You're always subject to your circumstances. You're always subject to something coming and stealing your joy and robbing you of your peace and casting you on the rocks. And and I I chewed on this last week and this week and studying and and trying to help us understand this. And and I came to the point that it's, it's not just negative circumstances. Practically anything will steal your joy if it's not in Jesus. I thought about this this week. Wrap your mind around this. There are good things, supposedly good things, that can even rob your joy if this is where you're at. If you're at a place where your purpose is not Jesus and you're not living for that, there's no way you can say checkmate world. And you're at a spot where even even the success of other people will rob you of your purpose. Maybe some of you have had this happen in your life. You are or were the funny guy or the funny girl of your group. And then a new funny guy or funny girl came to work or school or married into the family or whatever it may have been. And what did you naturally think when that person entered the group? If that's where you find your purpose, if that's where you find kind of who you are and you find your identity in that, what happens? Funny person threatens you, do they not? 
Now, I want to put them down. I don't want to be around them, even though they are funny and enjoyable and affable. I don't want to be around them. I want to cut them off at the knees because I don't want them to steal my shtick. I'm the funny person, right? Some of you have had this happen at work. You had someone apply to a position in your department, and they seem to be a little bit more on the ball than you are. Like they're, they're just like a better version of you. It's like an upgrade of you. It's you 2.0. And you feel extremely threatened by said person, right? And what do you, what do you want to do? You want to try to get their application denied. You know, you're Googling like Ancestry.com or you're, you're somehow trying to dig up dirt. They're a murderer. We can't have them in our department. Get rid of them. You know, I, mu- I must stop them or they will be too strong and they'll, they'll steal this from me. Even, even ministers, people that like work full-time for Jesus can get in this spot where they can find the success of another ministry across town or even all the way across the world. Someone seems to be doing well, and oh, I don't seem like I'm doing that well, and all of a sudden, pettiness and jealousy. And all, all, what, what does all of that contribute to? Where someone else is doing well or someone else has something that's good for them, but it threatens me. It all speaks into, into the idea that you have a purpose that's outside of Christ. You have something that's moving you and driving you and motivating you, and even something as silly as somebody else doing well threatens to rob your joy, threatens to steal something away from you. And the only, the only way that you can get in a spot where the freight of life can really be handled, where you're not under the threat of losing joy or being crushed, the only way that you can get in a spot where you say, world, checkmate, is where, if you get where Paul is at where you say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I can promise you this, even if your purpose could hold the freight of your life, it certainly can't hold the freight of your death. There's no way you can get to a spot where you say to die is gain if your purpose is of your own invention. Death crushes it all. It takes it away. It robs it from you. But Paul understands what Christians should understand. That Jesus has defeated death in the grave and Jesus stands on the other side calling us to move forward in the gospel in this life and even one day calling us home. And Paul understands that for him, life is in Christ and because of that, there's nothing that can come at him that can really take away his purpose or his meaning for living that can steal his bottom line. And I read this and I honestly, it challenges my heart and I think, Lord, help me believe this. I think, Lord, help, help our church to believe this. You've got to look at this and answer the question, is Christ worth your whole life or not? There's no middle ground there. Yes or no? Is he worth your whole, not, your whole life or not? And if you answer the question yes, then you've got to pursue that. You can't just throttle it back into I'll be a good person and I'll come to church sporadically and occasionally I'll tell someone about Jesus that the opportunity just kind of falls in my lap. You can't throttle back into that. You have to get to a point where you say, you know what, I want Jesus to be the center and the circumference of my life. I want to live for him. I want him to be my all. And I would challenge you if, you, if that desire is there and you can recognize at least the truth and the potency of this, and, but you're not there, I would challenge you, begin to pray and say, Lord, change my desires. Lord, help me. This is why the, the, 
the prayer that Paul gave in the beginning of Philippians chapter 1 was so beautiful because Paul prayed, Lord, help us to abound in our love and may that love be in knowledge and in judgment and discernment and begin to pray that and say, Lord, help me to abound in love for you so that I can joyfully pursue you. Lord, take this this flickering flame that I have for you and burst it into a bonfire and help me to want you and all of you. Paul's there. And he's able to say, because of this, look at my life. Circumstances don't seem great, but he hideth my soul in the cleft of his rock. And I'm shadowing a dry and thirsty land, but that don't matter. I'm with Jesus. And I want, I want you, I want me to be there. Secondly, I would say this. In Christ, death is a comma, not a period. Now ask someone, just, I challenge you this week, ask a coworker, ask someone who's not a Christian, you know, what happens when we die? How do you deal with the problem of death? You will get a variety of responses. You may get heaven, you may get purgatory, you may get, you know, nowhere, just dust to dust, ashes to ashes, it's all done. You may get that you'll be stars in the sky one day, you may get that you'll be absorbed into a, a great cosmic sea of consciousness. I don't know what you'll hear, but you'll hear a lot of crazy. I had, I had a conversation with, with an unbeliever yesterday for about 20 minutes, and we were talking worldviews and some different things, and, and I asked her, I said, how do you deal with the problem of death? And the answer was, well, I don't really know what happens. I just think that we're all interconnected, and it'll be, it'll be good. I'm not sure what. It'll just be something will be good. You'll get, you'll get a whole lot of different responses. And I don't think, to be clear, I don't think that Paul intends for the major subject matter of Philippians chapter 1 to be death and life after death in the eternal. But in this passage, there are some really key takeaways that should inform some very serious Christian thinking on this, on this topic. And here Paul faces the question, will he survive his imprisonment or not? Will he get out of jail or not? Paul knows that life is extremely cheap in the Roman world. He knows there's a decent chance that he's going to be executed here while he's in prison. And he wants to prepare the Philippian church. Should news of my death reach you, I want you to be prepared to know Here's what I'm thinking about it. Here's what I'm feeling about this. I'm looking at a very real possibility of death imminently, and I want you to know what my heart is feeling in these moments along this topic. And, and if I could really distill his thought down, I would say he, he would say it this way, death is a comma, not a period. That life is going to continue. Let's, let's read it for ourselves. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ, and to what die is gain. Verse 22, but if I live in the flesh... This is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I want not. He's saying, what I want not, I don't know. Paul's saying, if I get to live in the flesh, then this is going to mean fruitful labor in Jesus, and I don't know what I'll choose. Life, death, both of these seem sort of desirable, and I'm kind of on the horns of a dilemma here of what I would actually choose. Now, Paul knows that the ultimate decision is in the hands of the Lord, but he's, he's debating this out. Verse 23 I'm in a straight betwixt two. You say, betwixt, twix is my favorite candy bar. I love that. That's not what he's saying, okay? In a straight betwixt two means I'm, I'm hard-pressed between these. This is a really, really difficult decision for me. I'm hard-pressed between these options. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul says, look, this is a tough decision, but if I was to tell you my desire, if I was to give you my yearning, if I was to tell you what I, I really kind of would want or hope for, my desire is actually to be 
with Christ. This is, Paul can face death with almost indifference. And the reason he can do this is because he knows that there's a triumphant certainty that awaits him, that when he dies, he is going to be with Christ finally and forever. Now, I will clarify for us that this is different than celebrating heaven. It's been said that death for a Christian means heaven now. That's true, but it's not completely true. Really, death for a Christian means Jesus now. Paul is not saying, I'm looking forward to kicking up gold dust and fishing in the river of life. He's saying, I'm looking forward to spending time with my king. This is probably the most accurate way to think of death for a Christian, is that I get to go be with King Jesus. I get to be with my Savior. I get to be with my Redeemer. And there is a difference there. When I go home from work, I don't hug the sofa and kiss the lamp. I hug my children, and I hug my wife, and I kiss them. Why? Because they are what makes home home for me, right? This is what Paul is saying. Jesus is what makes home home for me. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven for me. By the way, I do, I, I put even more value on my wife probably than even my kids. I love my kids, but, you know, it's been said you can have one wife, one wife, but you can have multiple kids, so there's a little bit more of a premium there, but that's what makes home home. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, for me, my desire is I know I'm graduating to heaven and I get to be with Jesus, so I, I desire that. Now, if, if we're honestly going to let this passage speak to us, we've got to stare in the face Paul's astonishing indifference toward death. You've you got to square up to it and answer the question, does my attitude toward death look at all like this? And I, I know that's uncomfortable. I know it is. We, I, Christian or non-Christian, much of our culture, we don't, we don't want to talk about this. Some of you even here are thinking, Pastor, can you just make this point quick and get on to something else? I've even scanning the room. I've already this morning scanned four or five of you who have dealt with, with deaths extremely recently, this month. But, but you got to look at it in the face. You, you got to own it. So let's do that, okay? The truth of the matter is we're all going to die someday. Like, save the rapture, okay? That's exclusion clause over there. But outside of that, you're coming to my funeral. I'm coming to yours. Our mortality rate has been holding steady at 100% for a long time. There's not much you can bank on, but you can bank on that, right? So where does our hope lie? Now, the majority of our culture, I would say broadly, they just kind of push their chips over to, well, I'm just going to be a good person, and that's where my hope's going to lie. Which, I always ask the question, you know, good compared to what? If your hope is in good person, who are you comparing yourself to? Like your neighbor? Like you want to, you know, you love your wife better than your neighbor does, so you, you're going to push all your chips right there, that God's going to give you hope in the afterlife because of that? <laughs> I don't know that I do that. And the scary part about the Bible is that the Bible tells us to compare ourselves amongst ourselves is not wise. And the Bible compares our goodness to the holiness of God. And when you look at that, oh boy, it ain't, it ain't good. It's scary. You do that, read Romans 3. You do that, and even our good works, even our righteousness becomes as filthy rags and it doesn't even look good compared to that. So by that standard, we all fail. No one's winning in that scenario. 
But Paul looks at death with indifference and says, great, graduate me on out of here. I get to go be with Jesus. How can he get there? How in the world could he face what looms large in many of our minds and hearts? And I get that it does even for Christians. We've even, as a culture, just chew on this in your own time. We have so made death uncomfortable and even embarrassing almost. It used to be, go, go back 100 years, 150 years, and it, death was just, it was so much more a normal part of life. Families lived together, even extended families oftentimes lived together in the same home. People passed away at earlier ages in life. And many times I was at home. So it was very typical in, in relatively recent history for three and four and five and six and seven-year-olds to be faced with death square on in their living room, in the bedroom. People died at home, not at hospitals. When they died, they weren't immediately ushered away by the coroner to be beautified so that death didn't actually look like death three days later at the viewing or the funeral. And I'm not, I'm not against that stuff, but the sum total of that is that we, we just feel really awkward with it. Most, most people do. We feel really weirded out by it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to consider it. But Paul does. And he says, I know that there's a very real chance that I'm going to die soon. And I want you to know what my attitude towards this is. My attitude is, fine. I'm going to be with Jesus. Now, if we're not there, if our attitude doesn't reflect his at all, and I'm not saying walk around with a death wish, hoping that you will die. That's not what I'm saying. But if we can't get to a point of comfort there, we, we should be. Paul is. And the only way that you can get there is in Christ. And he knows this. He knows that these two are mutually inc inclusive. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. They go hand in hand. That my, own, my own personal story of, of coming to faith in Jesus really was very connected to this idea. I was in middle school fresh off the funeral of my aunt who died very tragically in, in a car accident, very unexpected. I'm fresh off that, off that funeral and I'm thinking about what's going to happen to me when I die? Can I be certain of that? Can I know what, what the future would hold? Can I bank on anything? Is there, is there anything that I can tether myself to to do that? And I'd grown up in church, so I knew enough Bible to know that, that God offers the gift of eternal life which is heaven. He, offer, he offers that to us freely. I knew that. I knew that my, my entrance into heaven and to, into eternal life was not going to be based on my resume and what I had done, but it was going to be based on a referral, what Jesus had done for me. I knew that I needed to put my faith and trust in him, but I had never done that. And I came to a, a big kind of contributor or motivating factor even for me coming to faith was I was, frankly, I was, I was scared. I did not have peace at all about what life after this life would be for me. And I wanted that. And I looked at the scriptures and searched them and I knew that it said, if you put your faith in Jesus, that Jesus came and he died and he was buried and he rose again. And if you put your faith in him, the same will await you. There actually is certainty. You can bank on his resurrection knowing that he conquered death. So, so too, I can conquer death. I can conquer the grave. But that, that is given to me as a free gift. And it pushed me into, Lord Jesus, I want to believe on you, and I want peace for this because I'm scared as a, as a young man. Perhaps you're here. I'm not trying to be morbid this morning, but I'm trying to look at the text honestly. Perhaps you're there. Let me tell you that you can have a certainty about your future. 
You can have a confidence as, as Paul has. If you're not ready for death, you can be today. To put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you and died, buried, and rose again so that he offers you life now as it should be, a purpose worth living for, designed for you now, but also after death. And Paul looks at this and he says, I'm ready for this. And this is not just some antiquated, first century, apostolic thing that he had that we don't have. We should have this. I read in my, in my study this week about an Iranian man named Mehdi Debaj. And many of you, you may remember him. It was back in the 80s and 90s that he was a Muslim who converted to Christianity in the early 80s. And he was uh, imprisoned by the Iranian government and brought up on charges of blasphemy because it's illegal there to do. And he sat in prison for 10 years. And when I say prison, I don't mean American yard time and 100 channels prison, all right? This is a prison in Iran. I had a number of years ago, I was in Bible college. I was probably 21, 22. I had a conversation with a Syrian Muslim who converted to Christianity, and he, he lived in Syria, and his purpose was to evangelize Yemen and Oman and Iran, and he had a the most daring boldness for Christ I've ever witnessed in my entire life. And he regularly spent time in prison, locked up. His name was Raji Baruti. And I sat at lunch with him, and I just, I marveled at this man's boldness for Jesus and how he was just unfazed by what people threw at him. But he told stories of prison there, and prison for him typically went like this. He would be locked up in a room that was extremely temperature-controlled, and temperature-controlled in a way that they would elevate the heat, not in a I'm, I'm miserable, uncomfortable, sweaty way, but literally in a I'm in a tanning bed baking from the outside way. And after they had done that for a few days, they would drop the temperature down to 34, 35 degrees, and you would freeze for a few days, and then back and forth and back and forth. And he told just story after story after story. And this, this man, Mehdi, is in prison. And 10 years later, he's finally given his trial. Very similar situation to Paul. Paul's in prison, about to wait trial, about to give a defense and confirmation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he prepared a statement to read at his trial. I will read you the last uh, few lines from the last paragraph of the statement. You can Google it and read the whole thing for yourself if you want to later. But this is what he wrote. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the Gospels, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. I read that and I can't help but thinking, it seems like something's missing from our American churches, does it not? I don't know if he borrowed from Paul's words. I, I assume he probably did from Philippians. But a man, just a few years ago, Incidentally, in case you're curious, he was, he was sentenced to death. The American government put a lot of pressure on Iran, and they released him in December of 1993. And a few weeks later, he was murdered in a park. But here's a man, just normal guy, recently, a contemporary of ours. They got to a point where he said, life is in Christ, and I'm satisfied with that. 
And for me, I know death is not a period, it's a comma. And I, I can look at it and I'm okay. I'm all right. And the only, the only way to get there is in Christ. And the Bible talks about this often. If you're still uncomfortable with the topic, I'm almost, I'll move on in just a minute, but it talks about this often. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So if all I have is now, I don't want it. I'm miserable. He says, but I have more than that. Now Christ has risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. What's he saying? I know that Christ raised and there's life in him. I know he gives it to me. So I know that there's more to life than this life and I rest assured that he will give me eternal life and I, I find confidence in that. Paul goes on to write later in that passage to say that there's a, there's a greater day coming. We're to live for him and death has no sting and the grave has no victory because we get to die and go and be home with, with our Savior. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he compares this life to us walking around in a tent and he says one day we're gonna graduate out of our tent and we're gonna get something much more permanent and we're gonna live in that and there's a permanency that awaits us. Our mortality is temporary and this is coming and I embrace this and I celebrate this and this actually, I look at death and it encourages me and it helps me and it gives me hope and it infuses me to live this life the way that I should. And we as Christians, need to be there. The Lord's Prayer echoes this sentiment. Many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer out of rote memorization or redundancy in, in, in your life, and you haven't even realized what you were praying when you said, thy kingdom come. That's saying, Lord, bring on the kingdom. Saying, Lord, what waits in the future, bring it on. I hope for it. I want it. I, I yearn for it. I want to be with you. That's what that's saying. And we have to be there. If not, we fall short. We find ourselves in a spot where, where death, then it is scary, and it is, it is something that looms like a shadow on our life. And Paul says, in Christ, world checkmate. In Christ, I know that death, it's not a period. It's not an exclamation point. It's a comma, and it goes on. And, if, and when you hear that I'm dead, don't believe a word of it. I'm living with Jesus. And I hope that you this morning, number one, if, if you're not sure of your eternal destiny, I hope that you make that sure today because you, you absolutely can do that today. But I hope that you see this helps you know what, what does life really count for? What do you want to live for? What are you banking on? It has to be Jesus. Last thought. In Christ, living for others makes sense. Paul continues. He's on the horns of this dilemma. What, what should I choose? I don't know what I should choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. I can see fruitful labor living. I can see that but I, want to, I want to go be with Jesus. I'm desiring this. So what's Paul's conclusion? He's going to tell us, verse 24. Nevertheless, to abide with you in the flesh, it's more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. You see what's happen happening here? Paul is saying, I take, I take my desire to go to heaven and enjoy Jesus, and I temporarily defer this to the needs of others. I don't know what I'm going to choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Okay, I've decided I choose life. Now, it's not really in Paul's hands. It's in God's hands, and he knows this. But he says, if I have to choose, I choose life. And the reason I choose life is not because it's my internal desire. I choose it actually because it's going to help you. 
It's going to give you progress. It's going to further you in the faith. I'm going to be able to, to edify you and to build you up and to help you along. And there's still people that need leadership. And there's still people that need love. And there's still people that need encouragement. And there's still people that need joy. And there's still people that need me to speak a word into their life. This is Paul saying the ultimate determining factor here is, is I, want, I want what's best for you. Not, not what, I'm not self-centered. Paul is saying to them, that I want to be with Jesus, but because I live for Christ, I, what naturally flows out of that is I live for you. I am deferring what I think would be best to you. Paul has a purpose of living that's in Jesus, but it goes so far beyond himself. It goes so far beyond what he wants. His living for Jesus just naturally flows into living for other people. Which is a challenge for us, is it not? There are, there are a million ways to apply this, and frankly, I'm out of time to give you most of them, but I'll give you a couple. We want people to live for us. Most people do, at least, I should say. And our culture sells us this lie. To be self-absorbed and self-centered and have the world revolve around you. And we, we so often want people to live for us rather than the opposite. I see this all the time. Here's one example in, uh, in counseling, in, in marriage, or in relationships. And I can't think of a time where I had someone tell me, you know what, Pastor, I'm dating them, or I'm, I'm going to get married to them, and my rationale for that is because I want someone that I can do life with, that I can be with, and we just sacrificially want to give ourselves to other people so that the gospel can be furthered and that other people are built up. I've yet to hear that. Now, I oftentimes hear, Pastor, I'm looking for someone to take care of me. I'm looking for someone to meet my needs. I'm looking for someone to bring me happiness, to, to, to bring me completeness, to complete me, bring me tranquility in my life, fix all my brokenness. I hear that all the time, which is stupid because no one can do that. Ladies, if you think that he is going to fulfill all the desires of your heart and everything that's chaotic is suddenly going to make sense and he, my soulmate, and now all that's wrong in the world will be right in the world and I will just, I will have joy and happiness in him. You're, you're going to be fooled. Most guys ain't figured out the riddle of personal hygiene yet, much less <laughs> you. Guys, same thing. You think that she's going to bring comfort and all the troubling situations and all the work chaos and all the, and she's, she's going to just be there. And I'm for you not being lonely. I'm for you and your wife doing life together, having that relationship. Absolutely. But that's, that's not a purpose worth living for. And you can't shop that out and put that on somebody else. Try reversing that. What if someone walked up to you and said, I want you to be my end-all, be-all, the, the reason for my existence. You, you complete me and bring my identity and, and, you, and you fix all of me and you... You know what you're going to say? Like, I don't know if I can do that. Because you can't. But it's indicative that we oftentimes find ourselves unwittingly in these situations where we're saying, revolve around me, make life about me. What I'm pursuing is going to be me. And we find that we're conditioned by our culture to be narcissistic, to be self-absorbed, to what's in it for me? What can you do for me? What benefit is there for me? How is this going to help me? Those are the questions we ask ourselves many times, are they not? And Paul's come to a point where he says, 
I understand that I'm living for Christ, and as such, I'm living for other people. So I'm going to defer what I really would prefer for my life. I push it to the side, and I say, you know what? I choose life, and I choose it for other people, and I want to live for them. Paul understands that living for Christ inevitably means living for other people. You want to measure your love for your father, measure your love for your brother. And we'll, we'll tackle this in greater detail, but I want you to read this. Just go forward a couple verses. Go to chapter 2, verse 4. They're, they're separated by just such a brief amount of press, but we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks, and we'll hit this harder. Verse number 4 of chapter 2. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Well, that's a challenge. Don't be all about you. Be about other people. How can I do that? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Okay, what was the mind of Christ? Here it is. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's a great statement on the deity of Jesus. He's God, yet he made himself, verse 7, of no reputation. God became of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion of a man. So not just became a man, but he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You get that? You get what it's like to live for Christ. You live for Christ. You see how he lives and you model that. You understand that he had humility, that he had the model of a servant, that he, that he humbled himself even to death for us and served other people in living and in dying. And you can't help, if you're going to be in Christ and you're going to live for him, then naturally that will work its way out and that you live for other people. So you say, Pastor, I want to do that. I desire that. I want to live for Jesus, and in turn, I want to live for other people. So what's that mean? Do I need to quit my job, go to Bible college, go to seminary, and, and be in ministry full-time? You can, but no, you don't have to. You just have to be you for Jesus' sake. Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. You take the life that you have, and you do it for Jesus. Go Jesus isn't against you going trout fishing at the creek on opening day of trout season. Just maybe do it for his name. Take somebody who doesn't know him and, and throw it on out there. I'm not really a fisherman, so I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> throw it on out there, whatever you're doing. Put a line in there. I don't know how you catch trout. I'm being a little bit facetious. Not, anyway, some of you are like, he's so much less masculine now. I can't fish. But whatever. Do it for Jesus. Have someone with you. Share the gospel with them. Have a conversation with them. While you're there, pray. Talk to him. You, you do it for Jesus. You take the job that he's given you and you say, okay, Lord, I don't know exactly why you gave me this job. I'm around this, these people. I have this sphere of influence, but I trust that it's divinely from your hand. So, Lord, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to take the people that are around me and I'm going to try to share you. I'm going to try to walk life for you and I'm going to try to witness for you and I'm going to try to be an example to these people for you. Lord, you've allowed this situation into my, into my life negative. You've allowed this situation in my life positive. I'm going to use this for your glory. I'm going to take this and I'm going to use what you've blessed me with and the money and the means and I'm going to use that for your glory. I'm going to live for you and your namesake. That's what this is talking about. That, that I take what my life is. You don't have to completely alter your life and have a new career path and, and to have this upheaval and, and to go be a missionary in, in Africa. You can be if you want to, but you don't have to. You can take your life now and live it for Christ and live it for others. And Paul gets this. And this Man, I come to this passage, and it is, it is such a challenge to me, to me. The Paul says, because of 
who Jesus is, because of my life in him, I can say, world, checkmate. Bring it on, I win. No, I don't care what you bring at me. Because of this, I can say, I look at death, I desire it, it's fine. I'm okay with it. I embrace it. I'm a little bit indifferent to it. I'll go be with Jesus. It's a comma, not a period. Because of this, I'm living for other people. I choose them. I choose their benefit. I live for their good. And we should be there. We should be. Zebaster, I'm not, I'm not there, but I want to be. Me too. Me too. But I hope we look at this and we say, Lord, help me get there. Help my love to abound so that I can joyfully chase you in all things. Will take my flickering flame and burst it into a bonfire of passion for you and help me. Lord, do a work of grace in my heart so that I can pursue you more fully, so that I can make you my purpose. We should be there because the Bible teaches this, but I love there's so much practicality there. There's so much pragmatism there. If anything else, it crumbles, it crushes. You can't, it can't hold the freight of your life. I hope that we get there.